UFOs are back in the news. After decades of secrecy, the American public, and especially UFO believers, are waiting eagerly for a report from the Defense Department to Congress this month. The report is expected to reveal what our military, law enforcement, and intelligence agencies know, and most importantly don't know, about unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAPs. That's the government's fancy new terminology for UFOs. Hello everyone, I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is Techtopia. The upcoming report would have been a wish come true for Bryant and Helen Reeve. Between 1953 and 1955, one of the most prolific periods in U.S. history for UFO sightings, that Detroit-Michigan couple traveled 23,000 miles over a two-year period, conducting a detailed oral history of so-called saucerers, those who had witnessed flying saucers. The Reeves documented their oral history in a fascinating book called Flying Saucer Pilgrimage, published in 1957. Here now to tell us more about Bryant and Helen Reeve and their extraordinary UFO journey is their grandson, my friend, Brian Cunningham. Cunningham is executive director of the Cybersecurity Policy and Research Institute at UC Irvine. He's an international expert on cybersecurity law and policy, a former White House lawyer and advisor, and a media commentator on cybersecurity, technology, and surveillance issues. Brian, welcome to Techtopia. Thank you, Chitra. It's wonderful to be here. I don't know if I'm the only person who's appeared on both of your excellent podcasts, but I'm happy to be one of them. And I, I, I like really like the Techtopia approach. It's been great so far. Hopefully I won't ruin it today. Oh, it's an honor and privilege, Brian. So 67 years ago, on December 16, 1954, your grandparents, Bryant and Helen Reeves, wrote a letter to President Dwight Eisenhower, and they were not happy with him. What was their beef with the president and what was their advice to him? It's fascinating for me to read this telex in the book as a intelligence officer just think about the fact for a second that this was using literally using the telegraph and as they say in the book i think they were sending it from mexico and they paid 52 pesos to send it but what they were really doing and if they were alive today what i'm sure they would have done is they were filing a freedom of information act request and there was no legal mechanism for the do, for them to do that in 1954. So in some ways we've come a long ways. What they essentially were saying to President Eisenhower was, we deeply admire you, great war hero. You should overrule all of the Luddites in the Department of Defense that work for you and release everything the government knows about UFOs. We have a constitutional right to know they said, and furthermore, the air of secrecy that the US government, in their view, was putting around this subject matter was so different from what a lot of other countries were doing in terms of talking about it openly that it actually made people much more fearful than they needed to be. And I would say, finally, this uh, piece of mail has been answered with the new report. For you personally, it must be fascinating because you are in the national security space, you're an expert on surveillance, but also on civil liberties and privacy. So, I mean, the fact that they were asking uh, President Eisenhower, you know, be transparent, be open, uh, you know, do your duty to your citizens. Uh, it must be really kind of eerie almost, right, to see that given where you are today. Well, I have multiple minds about this entire subject, which is perhaps appropriate given some of the metaphysical philosophies that my grandparents discuss in the book. 
as a trained intelligence officer, I'm supposed to focus on the facts and just the facts, as Joe Friday would have said on Dragnet. <laughs> but part of what people don't realize about intelligence analysis is that it, in most cases, is much more art than science because by definition, if you are the president, you have to turn to your intelligence services to explain something to you. It means you don't know everything about it. So we're trained also to be very comfortable with putting ourselves out on a limb and interpreting uncertainty. So to me, the fact that they, my grandparents were pretty candid and repeated in saying, we don't know everything, we probably don't know much of anything, but we're trying to connect the dots with the information that we do have is very consistent with what I would do as an intelligence officer. Now, I'm not saying in any way, shape or form that I agree with or endorse everything that's in this book, but the process that they went through, and my grandfather was a, a trained engineer, is not that different from what you would do if you were an intelligence analyst and you were faced with very little information. And I'll also note, just as a strange historic echo, they might say, or frequency vibration, <laughs> that <laughs> one of my first jobs as a baby lawyer at the Central Intelligence Agency was processing Freedom of Information Act requests. And one of the most common Freedom of Information Act requests that we would get is tell us everything you know about the UFOs. And it, this was in the mid-90s, and it was so common that we actually had a package that was pre created. And when we got a letter, or I guess probably was before an email, we got a letter under the Freedom of Information Act, we would just send out this package of information. So it's strange how these things echo through at least my history. In that package, was it mostly denial? Was it what was it? I'm curious to know, how did you approach it? Well, let me caveat that by saying that I'm operating now on what 30 year old memories plus it was newspaper articles, but it was also, as I recall, and I'm sure some one of your listeners probably could find this somewhere on the internet, that it also included government documents that had been redacted. So you're familiar having read the book and become versed in the subject and read the New Yorker piece about Project Blue Book. Well, Project Blue Book was a real thing that the Air Force conducted and they really did create actual reports. In fact, I can't prove this, but I believe I remember my grandmother in the 70s actually having a document that purported to be a redacted version of Project Blue Book Report. And now you can go on Amazon and get it. My guess is if you flip through that book, you would see a lot of the same redacted documents that were in the CIA Freedom of Information Act requests. Former President Barack Obama recently made, I thought was a stunning admission, acknowledgement. He said to talk show host James Corden that there are footage and records of objects in the sky that we don't know how they move, their trajectory, and that people take it seriously, that they're trying to investigate and figure out what that is. And he also said that it was one of the first things he asked about upon taking office. I mean, you're a former top CIA lawyer, former Justice Department prosecutor, cybersecurity, national security expert. What do you make of his admission? You have to believe that that is one of the first questions almost any president asks when they step into the Oval Office for the first time, especially 
given the famous scene in Independence Day where the president tells uh, a civilian, oh, that's ridiculous. We don't have anything in Roswell. And then his CIA director says, excuse me, sir, but that's not entirely accurate. <laughs> what is a huge sign of the changing times is that you actually now have a former president who is willing to say that in public. And former presidents are not free to say anything they want. As, as a, a sitting president, you can make a decision on the spot to declassify information. As a former president, you don't have that authority. So my guess is that at some point since he's left office, President Obama cleared that statement with whoever was the current president at the time. I don't know if he did it under Trump or, or Biden. But it's, I think, really, really important for a couple of reasons. One is it shows our people, the American people and people around the world, that we're willing to at least be somewhat transparent about these issues. Second thing, and I hadn't really focused on this until I reread Brian and Helen's book, is throughout at least modern history, most people who have had the nerve to publicly acknowledge and talk about unidentified flying objects have been ostracized and marginalized and attacked and insulted. And they can't do that anymore. Well, I suppose people who think President Obama lies in public about things like this can still do that, but very much harder to marginalize a journalist or a, a private researcher as my grandparents were once you have a president who has acknowledged the possibility. If they were here today, given their very specific advice to President Eisenhower, which eerily, you know, the seven recommendations that they had, most of that is actually coming true today, uh, including encouraging people in the military to report these sightings, as you've actually seen happen in the last month or two. Uh, but if they were here today and given uh, that President Obama's comments, what would your grandparents' reaction be, do you think? I think if they had lived till this day and had lived through the previous 70 years of no president doing that, they would be very angry that it took this long. And I think they would be surprised that it took this long based on their what they wrote in the book. I think they would be happy that it's finally been done, but I think they would re-recommend a commission of unimpeachable outside experts to be given access to all the classified information and write a public report that was subject to minimal government control. I don't think they would say declassify everything if it's a threat to our security, a legitimate threat to our security, but don't keep things secret just because we think people are gonna be frightened or that it'll cause too much controversy. I think they had a lot more faith, frankly, in the common sense and wisdom and rationality of American voters than a lot of our politicians do. And I think they would say, bring it on, we can handle it. So tell us what you know and remember about your grandparents. How, how are you related to them? And, and do you remember them talking to you about UFOs? Well, my actual middle name is Bryant with a T. We don't like to talk about the H word, my first name. And I dropped the T sometime in my 20s, because no one could pronounce Bryant Cunningham. <laughs> but I'm actually named after Austin Bryant Reeve, although I'm actually not 
related to him by blood. He was my father's mother's second or third, <laughs> it's a little bit left to the midst of history, husband. Helen Reeve is my blood grandfather, but Bryant Reeve is not a relation of mine. And I went back and actually pulled his obituary in preparation for this. And he died earlier than I thought. He died in 1968. So I was less than six years old, well, I was about six years old when he died. And I have very few memories of my life at that age. And I don't remember much about Bryant Reeve, but I do remember that he was very formal, but also very warm and incredibly analytic. He's a trained engineer and he didn't, he chose his words very carefully and he didn't tend to, as far as I could tell at that age, and I've also talked to my older brother who had a lot more contact with him. He didn't tend to just fly off the handle and, and speculate. So to read everything that's in the book, again, it's not that I think it's all real, but I think he would have been careful about at least being able to source most of the things he said to another person. My grandmother, Helen Reeve, I remember a lot more because she didn't die until the mid eighties. And it's interesting, if you look them up on Amazon, there's a second book called the, uh, Ad, it's called The Advent of the Cosmic Viewpoint. And I was unable to get a copy of it, but her name is not on that book. So it makes me wonder, did he start to be a little bit more out there in her view and she didn't want her name on the second book. I don't know. My brothers don't know. My father's and my mother are long gone. Helen Reeve, at the end of her life, when I knew her best, was pretty beaten down by life. She'd been a single mom during the Depression and had had a lot of hardship in her life, notwithstanding the fact that she got this great adventure in the 50s. And I remember her as not all that pleasant to be around. But I'm reminded of a line from some movie that I can't remember that their main character might have been Field of Dreams. The main character at one point says, I only knew my father when he was old and broken. And to be able to meet, if it was Field of Dreams, meet his father and see him as a young person, I think, think she was a very different person. I think a lot of what's in the book that's more colorful and descriptive and anecdotal is probably her because she was very open to all kinds of ideas. I think she was a little bit, by the time the 70s rolled around, of, uh, I don't want to say a kook, but let me give you an example. My grandfather was dead by this point. She had a garage full of powdered food that had there been a nuclear holocaust, presumably she would have lived on, sort of like a survivalist would, would do now. But of course, it makes no sense because if you survived a nuclear war, you're never going to have time to eat the powdered food that's in your garage because if you don't have a bunker, you'll be gone. So she was, I think, followed all her life by the work that they did with the UFOs. I think, she, I think they really believed that without the intervention of some higher power, we would blow ourselves up. And uh, thank goodness they were wrong about that, at least up until now. 
did she speak to you about UFOs uh, and to your parents? And how did they feel about all this? I mean, your dad was a minister, so I would imagine he had some very, uh, very definite thoughts on all of this. It's really interesting to have read or reread this book um, 20 years after my father's death. I recall him being quite embarrassed at the entire topic of this book. He didn't want to talk about it with my brothers. I think he probably would have preferred that we never read it. And at the time, when I was probably in my teens to 30s is when you know, we would have talked about this occasionally. I sort of assumed that the reason he was so embarrassed about it or didn't want to talk about it was that he just felt it was kooky and he didn't like the fact that he came from the stock of people that would buy into this stuff. But then later, as I read the book, I thought a lot of what informed my father's philosophy is in the book. Most importantly, he would tell me, and this is certainly not the Episcopal Church's doctrine, he was an Episcopal minister, he would tell me, I've never forgot, that if there is a higher being or a higher consciousness or a God, and they wanted to universally inform humanity, it's ridiculous to expect that they would reveal themselves, she would reveal herself, whatever, in the same way, in the same form, with the same words to societies all across human history and with all different cultures and languages. And I remember him saying, if you look at the fundamental tenets of the great religions and even most other religious beliefs, they're really quite similar. And his theory was that this was not that there were a hundred different supreme beings. It was that whatever's out there revealed itself to different cultures in different ways. And if you read the book, pretty much what they say. How did it all get started with uh, with your grandparents and this UFO adventure? I mean, uh, it, I think it started at a dinner party or something in their house. Yeah, they were, based on my conversations with my brother, they were socialites to some extent. I don't think they were extremely wealthy, but they must have had a fair amount of resources to be able to just drop everything and go on this 23,000 mile drive. But they would sort of have salons in their apartment or their condo in Detroit. And they would have friends over to talk about different ideas and different things that were happening. And none of us three brothers have any recollection of it. I wasn't alive, but it's very consistent with the way my brother described them that they would have at one of these salons, as they talk about in the first chapter of the book, had an intellectually curious friend who said, hey, I just read this book by a guy who is researching flying saucers and wasn't it interesting? And then they, according to the book, which is consistent with what my brother remembers about them, um, had enough means to be semi-retired and just go on this pilgrimage to try to record their understanding of what the people who claim to have had encounters with flying saucers believed. I think there's clearly an evolution in the book. I think at the beginning, if you believe the narrator, uh, my grandfather was very skeptical and not even particularly interested in it. And then it just, the ball got rolling and they met more and more and more people that whether they were credible or not, they found them to be credible. 
And they just, you know, some would say went deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. Others would say went uh, deeper and deeper into the investigation. And you can just tell that they, they were consumed by it. They, they, they read tons of stuff. Both of my brothers have this memory, by the way, I don't. Both of my brothers have a memory many, many, many years later of going to their home in Virginia Beach and having an entire office filled with books about UFOs, with reel-to-reel tape recording of interviews with saucerers. And it scared my brothers, both of them at different times. They were both little kids. Scared them to the point where one of my brothers called his mother and sort of insisted that he be sent home. And he was. He, he left. I don't remember it that way at all. I remember the books being around. And I remember my grandmother, remember Bryant Reeve was gone by the time I had much contact with him. I remember her telling me stories about UFOs. And I have a memory of going out in the backyard and having her point to the sky. And, you know, there was a shooting star or two and her saying that could be one of them. But I never was afraid by it. I don't know if that's just a difference in the what was happening in the world when I got exposed to it, or maybe she somehow presented it in a less threatening way than my grandfather did for my older brother, but I was never afraid by it. And I don't think she was afraid by it. What she was more afraid of, as I said, is that the higher beings would fail to prevent humanity from destroying itself. In reading the book, you know, it was kind of interesting how some of these cast of characters uh, were like, straight out of central casting, right? I mean, these stories were so uh, implausible in some ways and and yet there was something about it. And I mean, your grandparents, like you said, didn't show a lot of skepticism. They were just doing what I, you know, what we talked about as a kind of an oral history. But some of the, a lot of the other people were either highly educated, like your grandpa who was MIT, Yale trained engineer, or they were technical. They had technical skills, even if they had only had gotten out uh, just at high out of high school. Um, mostly male. Um, I mean, that added some element of credibility. The fact that they had technical skills. Some of them worked at Lockheed with Howard Hughes. You know, I mean, it was really an interesting mix of people. Yeah, there's another thread to it that I picked up on, which is some of them were as you say, had some technical or mechanical abilities and background, but were in, I think my grandfather's view, who was a Yale, MIT uh, elite. He was, you know, really one of the elite. And he, he, you get this feeling that he, in some ways gave more credibility to the salt of the earth people that he talks about, particularly there's a Mexican chauffeur he talks about. And he talks about their, humbleness and their lack of grandiosity and their lack of self-aggrandizement and their plain spokenness. And it, it feels to a 21st century reader a little bit elitist and condescending. And maybe it was, but I think what he's trying to say is these people were really too honest and too plain spoken to be making it all up. That's, that's kind of what I took away from that part of it. Yeah, definitely. And that was a recurring theme. And there were other recurring themes as well. One was, you know, you mentioned the 
your grandma having like this garage full of powdered milk. But one of the main themes was the nuclear war, right? The sense that maybe that had something to do with these uh, flying saucers, you know, that they were some kind of uh, weapons uh, vehicles, uh, things like that. And that just, you, you see that throughout the book and their concern about it and other people's concern about it. And so just put this in the context of history of where we were at that time, uh, time period. Well, of course, I wasn't around, but I am a bit of a science fiction fan. And they say that the science fiction of any particular era quite directly reflects the prevailing anxieties at the time. And if you look at science fiction that was produced, for example, in the 2000s after 9-11, it's very allegorical to 9-11. And I think what people in the 50s and 60s were reacting to was this overarching threat of nuclear destruction. And I am old enough to remember in middle school having to do the exercises where we got under our desk, <laughs> you know, like that was going to protect us if there was really a nuclear war. Uh, but having a lot of angst about that. And I, I think that informs a lot of their writing. There's also somewhat shocking to me, very direct references to what we would now call climate change. And I haven't been able to go back and do the research to determine whether a lot of these ideas that are in their book, nuclear fear of nuclear war, fear of climate change, this idea that there are higher beings out there that are here, but they're not scary because they're protecting us the idea is that eventually we'll have a society where money doesn't matter, where humans can pursue their learning and their higher selves, where there's no need for governments or, or law enforcement or war. A lot of the stuff in the book, and I actually marked them with uh, special color post-its, are the animating ideas behind Star Trek. And like I said, I haven't gone back to see if there's this, all these ideas were just floating around out there in the 50s and 60s, which I suspect, or Gene Roddenberry plagiarized from my grandparents. But if so, I want my damn royalties, Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> and you would know, right? Because you're a big Star Trek fan. It is quite remarkable, all kidding aside. Lots of these pages in the book could have been written by Gene Roddenberry, the, the creator of Star Trek. And again, I don't know if that's just kind of this was what was out there and everyone was thinking it, or he did research and came across this book and others, but it's pretty striking. It's also, there's a lot of things in there that if you read them in a certain way, and I, I suppose I'm biased to have a positive read of it, but if you read them a certain way, they're quite prophetic. You know, we talked about the telegram to President Eisenhower, the notion that we might have to face climate change one day. And there's another thing. They talk a lot about the idea that humans view the universe as empty space, outer space as empty, except where we can see physical things like planets, like stars, like galaxies. And their argument is, I don't know where they picked this up in their travels, but that what, the, what their philosophy was, was that, no, 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 that makes no sense. The universe 
is probably actually full. Like outer space is probably full of objects and beings, but humans in our current stage of development don't have the ability to understand that. Well, guess what just came out in the last couple of years? The proof of the existence of dark matter, which is, as I understand it, I'm no physicist, but is what scientists now believe occupies a lot of the space in which we can't see anything. That it's out there, the truth is out there, it's out there, but we don't yet have the ability to measure it and understand it and process it. So some of that stuff is, you know, gives you a little bit of chills when you read it in the 21st, mid 21st century. The most prophetic uh, chapter in the book is the one where, you know, you're sort of strolling along, you know, and they're talking about all these people they've met, all of them have seen UFOs and these great descriptions and narratives, both in the US and then they go on to Mexico for their, when your grandpa retired for their big Mexico adventure post-retirement. Uh, but then you come into, then they start saying that they themselves saw a UFO. And then there's this chapter where they meet up with uh, a person who they describe as a clairvoyant and a clairaudient. That's the first time I, I, I heard that word, uh, a medium or what they call a cosmic telephone, a man by the name of Mark Probert, uh, who's, you know, and, and so then they're now talking to some kind of inner circle of wise people, maybe aliens, maybe not. Talk about that chapter, because that sort of is a big twist in the narrative uh, that then starts to, you know, talk about sort of the universe as we, as we know it. Yeah, to say the least. Yeah, when, when I would describe this book to people, I, I read it when I was a teenager and I hadn't read it again until this week. When I described this book to people, I would always say, okay, you're going along for the first half of it. And it's weird. They're writing down some very weird stuff, but it's always them reporting what someone else told them. Initially, kind of without judgment. And then I think as this, the narrative goes on, they become a little more predisposed to just believe these people and give them credit, the credibility. And then full stop, they're conversing with the aliens. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I always thought that's probably where my dad got super embarrassed, right? He didn't want us to think that we had blood flowing in us of people who felt like they talked to the aliens. And the way I remembered it all these years was it just happened. Like all of a sudden there's just a transcript of their conversation with the aliens. It's actually not that way. As you say, what they spend two whole chapters, I think, first of all, preparing the reader that they're about to go off the rails. <laughs> Uh, and maybe you want to get off the train now, uh, almost in those words, and then describing this person, Mark Probert, and their conversations with him that led up to the, the Q&A with the aliens. And if you Google, which I'm sure you have, some of the figures in the book, including Mark Probert, they'll often take you to web pages of things like pseudoscience or fake science or you know charlatans or kooks. And I did some of that research because I wanted to see if my grandparents appeared in any of those, which I don't think they do, but Probert does. And they talk a lot about how he wasn't, I guess, even primarily a saucerer, as my grandparents would say. He was, you know, a, a medium. Uh, they called him a sensitive, someone who claimed that they could speak to other intelligences and other beings and you know, you think of a medium, you normally think of someone that says they can converse with your grandparents who are dead at a seance. 
So as you say, it's not even so much that Probert claims to be getting replies to my grandparents' questions from space people. It's this wise counsel of elders, I, I would say, that's my word, not theirs, from kind of throughout human and alien history who are not necessarily the space people, but they're relating what they think the space people are. And supposedly the, this council has something like per perfect knowledge. I would love to know, and I don't think there's any way to find out now because my older brother doesn't remember, the mechanics of how this happened was my grandfather sitting in a room with Probert who was typing because they talk about how sometimes he'll just type things and he won't know what he's typing and sometimes it's done other languages and all that. Because what's striking about the whole episode, whether or not you believe there's any truth to any of it, is somebody that was involved in that knew an awful lot about an awful lot of things that are accurate in terms of global history, in terms of religious tenets, in terms of ancient philosophies and societies. And so if it was any kind of real-time thing where my grandfather is sitting there with Probert and Probert's typing or more impressively yet reciting things that my grandfather's typing down, that's pretty breathtaking. Because that means somebody, for, I mean, I'm assuming there's no inner counsel and he wasn't actually conversing with higher beings. But if they wasn't, somebody, Bryant Reeve, Mark Probert, or someone else knew an awful lot about an awful lot of things, which would be kind of breathtaking. I think what's more likely is they probably mailed him the questions and he sent them back answers, in which case, theoretically, he could have researched it all. But even then, it's pretty impressive the breadth of what he talks about. And that's where the book kind of becomes almost an anthology of uh, man's struggle for enlightenment and, you know, preventing global warming and, you know, environmental and nuclear destruction. It just simply, it's just a complete change in tone and yeah. feel of the book. It's fascinating. Yeah. And I think they almost say that in so many words. It's, it's almost like they get to the point where they determine that the existence or non-existence of flying saucers is not important. What's important is the, they would probably say, essential cosmic truths that sometimes get relayed to us in their worldview by people from what we would think of as other planets or outer space, but sometimes not. Sometimes it comes to you in a dream. Sometimes it comes to Mark Probert in a dream. Sometimes you find it in ancient Native American writings. Sometimes you find it in Indian uh, writings. And it's almost like Bryant Reeve got bored <laughs> with the whether or not flying saucers are real and shifted entirely into this really metaphysical, philosophical, religious discussion. Because he tries pretty hard also to tie these concepts that supposedly are being told to us by the space people to Christian religion in the Bible. I'd say it's not entirely successful, but he makes a pretty good run at it. And you really get the feeling that they closed metaphorically closed the book on flying saucers and moved entirely into this philosophical realm. And I, I would cite one other piece of evidence for that. As I mentioned, the other book that's published under his name is called the advent of the cosmic viewpoint. And I could not find a copy of that book, but my older brother recalls that that second book has almost nothing to do with flying saucers. It's entirely about 
mysticism and philosophy and whatever other ideas were floating around in the in the early 60s at that point. One of my favorite things in the book is where they say, you know, we've broken the sound barrier. Now it's time for us to break the cosmic barrier, which I thought was really amazing. Yeah, well, this is another thing. They go through this whole theory and they try to convince you that the right metaphor is a television, which is interesting because that would have just been brand new technology when they were writing. But they go through this whole theory that the reason why humans at our stage of evolution don't see these, most of us don't see these other planes of existence where these other beings are. And, and interestingly enough, my grandfather's theory is there are beings on other planes of existence that are much more advanced than we are and much less advanced than we are. So it's not, univer it's not universally saying that every other type of being is more advanced than we are. But the analogy he uses is that the universe, quote unquote, vibrates at different frequencies. And that if you were watching a television in the early 50s when he was writing, you would only be able to receive and understand the world as it was transmitted on the frequencies that your television antenna was to be, was able to pick up. And that if you could tune into different frequencies, you would see a whole other type of existence. Well, 2021, well, there's a lot of physicists who believe that there are infinite numbers of parallel universes of existence and we just can't see them. And in fact, Einstein's theory, which would have been accessible to my grandfather at the time, so I certainly wouldn't say he, you know, my grandfather created this, but Einstein's theory of space-time is basically that there's a continuum of space and time and if you can bend it, which Einstein predicted massive black holes, for example, could do, you could immediately be transported between universes. And, you know, they're using different words, but they're kind of saying the same thing. Yeah, I mean, they said so much that is sort of coming true today, or at least is relevant in our conversations today, especially climate change and the fact that the Department of Defense is actually admitting that they do have an unidentified aerial phenomena task force, you know, uh, something that is just would have been a welcome development to your grandparents had they been here today. And to all those people, you know, who've been sort of told that they're really imagining things, right? And we just don't know what it is yet. But as your grandparents noted several times in their book, uh, you know, many other countries, you know, in Europe, nations such as Brazil have been open to the idea of UFOs going back decades. Now you've been in many, many classified environments, you know, in intelligence and law enforcement positions. We do provided legal advice to the president, the national security advisor, the national security council. I mean, what does this secrecy and denial around UFOs say about our, about our national security culture, if anything, good and bad? Well, first of all, I think it's just tremendous that these Navy and Air Force pilots are now being allowed to tell their stories and being backed up by the Pentagon releasing the videos. Again, one of the things my grandparents talk so much about is how 
anyone who spoke out about these things, even 70 years ago, was subject to kind of endless ridicule and dismissal. And so the, the, that's what's so important about what President Obama said and about the fact that they're going to release this report, although we can talk about it later. I suspect there's going to be less than meets the eye there. But it gives credibility to these pilots who want to tell their story and they're being allowed to tell their story. And I have to say, the radar images and the video that the Defense Department has released, coupled with the narrative of these pilots, again, is very, very consistent with what the types of the shapes of these objects, the way they can move, the lack of any visible source of propulsion, the speeds they can attain, how they can blink in and out of the sensors. That's all very consistent with lots of stuff that's in the book. And also things like uh, Winston Churchill, one of his senior air officers during World War II claimed that he had fought these things. They have this whole chapter on definitions. And one of their definitions talks about a type of saucer-like things, flaming balls, they called them, that pilots in World War II on the Allied side would see and assume were German secret weapons. And the German pilots would see and assume they were American secret weapons. And now putting on my musician hat for a second, those were called Foo Fighters, F-O-O Fighters. So I looked this up and sure enough, that's where the band, the Foo Fighters got their name. Fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, but, but let me just say one other thing, which I think is really important, and the others have said this too, but having been in senior intelligence and national security positions, if the videos that the pilots have commented on and that have been released, if any of them are accurate, if there are non-natural phenomenon that can move the way those things move, and have the technology that they have to have, I hope to God that that's alien technology. Because if it's the Chinese or the Russians or the Iranians or any other nation on earth, we're in deep, deep trouble. Because that technology, I've seen it described as thousands of years ahead of ours. Wow, and that is one of the concerns, according to uh, you know leaked uh, information from uh, in advance of this report being released that the concern in the U.S. government is if this were Russian or Chinese or Iranian technology that that they're experimenting with hypersonic speed, that that would be a real concern. But wouldn't you be more worried if it were aliens who had that technology more than the Russians and the Chinese? No, because any civilization who had the ability to reach Earth from what would have to be, unless you believe in the alternate planes of existence, light years, hundreds of light years beyond our solar system. And to do the things it does, that society would undoubtedly be capable of destroying humanity if they wanted to. And particularly if they've really been here since at least the 50s. And you, as you know, in the book, they quote a lot of other prior books that said they've been here forever, you know, that there's evidence in ancient Native American writings and others for that. If they have that capability and they haven't destroyed us yet, one, probably pretty good evidence they don't want to, and two, 
if they decide they want to, there's probably nothing we can do about it anyway. Whereas the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians, we really do have to be prepared to protect our security against them. One of my favorite sentences, speaking of Native Americans, is they, they referred to that they had referred to these things that they had seen uh, as flying tortillas. I thought that was really sweet. Yes. They, well, there's a whole, as you know, there's a whole Mexican road trip in the book. And Mexico is one of those places that they quote as being the government being much more open to allowing people to talk about this stuff. And they made friends, according to them, with a newspaper editor at a pretty large, what sounded to me like a pretty large newspaper in Mexico City, who was writing about this stuff week in, week out, which which kind of gets to the same, a little bit the same point I wanted to make about the pilots. According to the reading I've done, and I think some of them have even said this in interviews, that it wasn't like they saw these things once every blue moon. They saw them every day for years when they were out on their training missions in the early to mid, well, from like 2005 to 2017. And another hypothesis for what are referred to as UFOs could actually be is top secret US government technology. And the debunkers will say, well, of course, the government is never going to let it be known that we have this sort of technology. So they're going to try to marginalize any talk about it by letting people think it's UFOs. Well, I don't doubt that that might have been true back in the 40s and 50s. We know that we were testing the U-2 spy plane. We know we were testing the SR-71. We know that now that that was happening in areas like Area 51 around that, that area. But today, I don't think that explanation cuts it because if these were top secret US government technology development programs, you would think that the government would be smart enough to not order Navy and Air Force pilots with video cameras and radar to fly in the same area we were testing those devices day in, day out for years. That would be pretty stupid. Yeah, and in fact, uh, the New York, a recent New York Times report that uh, had some of this advanced information on this upcoming report said that the officials that they spoke to said it was definitely not American technology, which is why they're concerned about it. Uh, I'm curious, uh, and you don't have to say one way or the other, because at some point you probably want to get another <laughs> national security clearance, but how do you feel about UFOs and flying saucers, and, and how did your grandparents' belief in them influence your life for good or bad? Well, taking the second one first, I think in preparing for this podcast, I've realized that it probably had a lot more influence on me than I thought when, and I had completely forgotten about this until we started talking about doing the podcast. When I was eight years old, I <laughs> starred in our little small town theater production of a play called Let's Go to the Moon a fantasy for children in three acts. And it's about this little boy. It was written in the fifties, interestingly enough, but it was about this little boy who uh, is ridiculed uh, by his sisters and uh, his friends. Cause he doesn't want to play with the normal stuff. He doesn't want to hear about fairy tales and GI Joes and things like that. He wants to go to the moon and be uh, an astronaut. And he has a dream where he gets to go to the moon and it turns out all the fairy tale characters are real and they live on the moon and he gets to meet them. And then he comes back to his real life. It's a little bit ripped off from the wizard of Oz, but nonetheless, 
I had totally forgotten I was in that. And I have to believe that either in this small town, my grandmother actually somehow got them to produce this play because it was related to space travel or at least strongly encouraged me to go do it. I don't have a recollection of that, but I know I wasn't a theater person at that point. After the play, when I was 11 years old, my grandmother, Helen Reeve, paid for a trip to Mexico with my father and I and she. And I remember it extremely well because not only was it the first time I'd ever gotten on an airplane, it was the first time I'd ever gotten out of Ohio and I was 11. And I remember that we went to five or six different places. I don't remember all of them, but they were not necessarily obvious places you would go visit if you were gonna be a tourist in Mexico in 1973 or something. And I had kind of forgotten most of the details of the trip, except I remember my grandmother was very insistent, sometimes making my dad very impatient and upset that we visit certain places. And sometimes they were just like open fields. And what triggered this memory is in the book, they have a photograph of the Insurgentes or Insurgentes Theater in Mexico City. And I definitely remember her insisting that we fight through, you know, Mexico City traffic to go see that theater. And I remember that facade of that theater, it's in black and white in the book, but it's super colorful, kind of native uh, Mexican painting on it. And as I was talking to both of my brothers, getting ready for this podcast, my older brother said, when I mentioned this trip, he said, oh yeah, that's known in the family as the UFO field trip. And I had forgotten this, but what she did is she dragged my dad and I to places in Mexico that she felt had had significant UFO related events. And, and that theater is described in the book as the place where a very large one of these UFO lectures took place in Mexico. But some of the places we went were just in the middle of nowhere. And I don't have a specific memory of this, but filling in the blanks, I'm pretty sure she was taking us to places that she thought people had had encounters with That's saucers. So there's that. And then I've always had strong curiosity about anything having to do with time travel, faster than light travel, issues of in space. I mean, I don't have enough scientific or mathematical ability or background to really be an astrophysicist or anything like that. But I've always been really interested in that stuff. And I suppose maybe there's a small part of me that hoped subconsciously that if I got more and more and higher and higher security clearances, someday I would be sitting in a meeting and I would learn the truth that's out there. Not that that's what motivated me to be an intelligence officer, but I have to believe that was a little bit in the back of my mind. So to answer your $64,000 question, I have never been briefed classified or unclassified with information that would answer the question, is the earth being visited by beings from another space or another dimension or whether UFOs are real? I have, however, been briefed on a lot of things that at the time I learned of them, and some of them still now to this day, average people would find very difficult to believe. 
but I know that they're true. So I keep a very open mind about it and is the first part of the answer. Second part of the answer is just math. You know, I forget the analogies that are used, but there are probably billions or hundreds of billions or trillions of planets that astronomers and astrophysicists know about in the universe. And there's probably many, many more than that that they don't know about. And then within that, I believe astrophysics has already identified dozens, if not hundreds of planets that theoretically, based on their distance from their stars, could support human life. So for us to sit here and think that we're the only intelligent life in the universe is not only arrogant, but also just inconsistent with math. And that math assumes that other intelligent life in the universe is like us. If it's not like us, if it doesn't need to breathe oxygen and nitrogen, if it's not carbon-based, then the numbers are infinite. So I'm keeping an open mind. As an intelligence officer, I think we'll see what's in this report, but I think you have to believe that the balance of likelihood is tipping uh, in favor of the fact that there are other civilizations capable of travel here. And as has been pointed out in the New Yorker article and elsewhere, these are not Mexican chauffeurs, no offense to Mexican chauffeurs, that are filing these video reports. These are pilots in the United States military that we spend millions of dollars to train to be observers. They need to be able to determine in a split second if something that's coming at them is a Russian MiG fighter jet or an American fighter jet or a, you know, Air, civilian airliner. So the idea that this growing number of former pilots, and I'm sure there's a lot more that will come out, backed up by video and radar, are all hallucinating or wrong or seeing the same, you know, weather balloons or whatever the other explanations are, that's getting highly unlikely in my view. So will this report uh, raise more questions than it answers? I think it's likely that it will, and I think it'll be a Rorschach test too, right? Like a lot of these things, I think people who want to believe and are not threatened by believing that we're being visited by unidentified aerial phenomenon, as they call them, will believe it and they'll be happy about it. People that are in the business of debunking these things will probably find statements and citations in the report that they can use to debunk it. But if the leaks are true, I think the report will say that there are, I might get this number slightly wrong, but I feel, feel like I read 120 incidents stated in the report that they cannot explain. And that's a lot because they've been at this, well, some believe the US government's been at this for 70 years, but for sure, this Pentagon task force has been at it for 16 years. And if this report went through the same process that a US government official intelligence analysis document, a, what we used to call an intelligence estimate, actually went through, it was subjected to very rigorous argument within the various agencies of the US intelligence community and probably would contain a number of footnotes where one or more intelligence agencies dissented from a particular point 
if that kind of stuff is omitted, you know, if we just see the kind of stuff that's in the Project Blue Book report and not the debate among the intelligence services about the accuracy of various parts of the report, then I think it probably will raise more questions than answers. But what it'll do for sure is put yet another president on the record as saying that there seems to be things out there that we can't explain and people who say that there are are not crackpots, which in and of itself will be pretty important. I loved your grandparents' dedication in the front of the book where they sort of uh, speak to all the sorcerers of the world, as they call them, you know, wherever they may be, uh, they say that someday they will have an opportunity to tell the world, I told you so, and, and maybe do you think the time is now? <laughs> I would like to think so. I, as you can imagine, my two brothers and I over the years have kidded my dad and kidded each other and laughed a lot about this whole situation. And when the woman pilots video came out and it was announced that this report was forthcoming, I texted my brothers and I said, finally, vindication for the Reeves. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, we, we're going to, we have the, the pilot, uh, Alex Dietrich on our podcast and, and she on, on our other podcast when it mattered. And she has some very amazing stories just like yours. I know that's, that's amazing. I can't wait to, uh, can't wait to hear that. I'd, I'd love to know what she thinks of Flying Saucer Pilgrimage, but I wouldn't impose on her to read it. But yeah, that's, uh, it's just a very welcome development that, we're as a government apparently about to not call all these people crazy and I, that would make my grandparents very happy well brian thank you so much for joining me on techtopia and for this absolutely amazing conversation about your grandparents and their sweet oral history on ufos my pleasure truth is out there Brian Cunningham is executive director of the Cybersecurity Policy and Research Institute at UC Irvine. He has extensive experience in senior U.S. government intelligence and law enforcement positions. He served as deputy legal advisor to the then national security advisor, Condoleezza Rice. He also served six years in the Clinton administration as a senior CIA officer and federal prosecutor. Brian drafted significant portions of the Homeland Security Act and related legislation helping to shepherd them through Congress. He was a principal contributor to the first national security strategy to secure cyberspace, worked closely with the 9-11 Commission, and provided legal advice to the President, National Security Advisor, the National Security Council, and other senior government officials on intelligence, terrorism, cybersecurity, and other related matters. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then. <laughs>